Welcome to The Field, a podcast of targeted trainings for child welfare professionals. I'm Cassie Gillespie. Join us as we chat with local experts about topics that are pertinent to child welfare in Vermont. Hello, everyone. I'm Pete Cudney, and I'm really excited to bring you a discussion with my colleague, Caitlin Zura. Caitlin is a licensed psychologist who works with the Northeastern Family Institute of Vermont. Caitlin is part of a brilliant team of clinicians at the NFI Family Center, where she provides psychological evaluations and practices as a family therapist. Among other areas of practice, Caitlin has expertise in assessing and providing treatment for young children who have experienced trauma. Caitlin practices using the child-parent psychotherapy model, which we'll also discuss. Caitlin, it is so great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Pete. I'm so happy to do it with you. Yeah, it's really great that you're taking time out of your schedule to talk about this. We really appreciate it. So um, I should probably pause to note that we're recording this on April 17th, 2020, uh, during the global coronavirus pandemic. So we're working and recording from home. Yes. Um, Caitlin, before we dive in, uh, how are you doing in the midst of this whole situation? You know, it's it's an adjustment. I've this is my first full week finally having a functional uh home office space to be working remotely from and um but I was thinking about it last night in pre- in preparing for the conversation with you about this whole situation has really made me think a lot about what I love most about my job and yeah. CPP and working with these families in particular is one of my favorite things. And so it's kind of nice that I get to talk about it today and um, think about all the things I really appreciate about my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great segue. So um, before we dive into family therapy in general or the the CPP, the child parent psychotherapy model in particular, mm-hmm. um, I wonder, so we, we talk about when when young children experience something that is so scary or so upsetting to them that that you know we the term we use for it is is trauma i wonder if you could just talk generally about what is it that we know happens for really young children when they experience trauma yeah so one of the most important things is the attachment between the young child and their caregiver and one of the most profound things that happens when a child experiences trauma is, um, you know, the loss of a protective base during a really critical period of development. So kids have this um, natural developmental expectation that their caregiver is going to keep them safe and they're going to protect them from danger. And when a kid, a young child experiences a traumatic event they lose that sense of safety and security from their primary caregiver. And the loss of that um, has a tremendous impact on their development across a lot of different domains of, of functioning. Okay, so if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, there's, there's this expectation that we probably take for granted most mm-hmm. of the time for really young children that um, that they may not even be aware of, maybe just a feeling that they have or something like that, that that if they have a need or if th- something is scary, that they can always just count on their parents to to take care of them and keep things safe. And, and you're saying that 
if they have a, an experience that's powerful enough that 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 can disrupt that and, and just cause them to suddenly not be able to um, have that predictable sense of of safety from their parents. That one, even one experience, if it's powerful enough, can can disrupt that for kids. Yeah, and I think that you know the extent to which an experience really impacts a child does depend on some factors. I think that there are ways that um, healthy attachment can buffer an experience, um, the impacts of an experience. So um, if a caregiver is able to kind of um, modulate that stress response for the child, maybe it has less of an impact across their development. Um, and the degree to which the, the caregiver can kind of um, understand what's going on and effectively respond to the child can really determine how much, I mean, so, you know, we talk a lot about how kids, a lot of different kids can experience the same traumatic event and respond in really different ways. And how do we explain that? And a lot of that has to do with um, the response of the adults around them. Oh, that seems critical. I mean, that seems really central. So, so a child can have a traumatic experience where, where the source of the trauma is, is not the parent or the caregiver. Mm -hmm. And then if the parent or the caregiver knows about that and responds in a way that soothes the child and helps the child feel safe and secure, mm -hmm. that may resolve it for them kind of fluidly just within that relationship. But you're saying if, if either the parent isn't able to do that, or if potentially the parents' actions themselves are to some degree a source of the trauma, um, then the child is left alone with it and, and they're not able to resolve it in that relationship. Right, and I think, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about in, in CPP, we're talking about both the caregiver and the child. And I think when a parent and a child experience a traumatic event together, Sometimes that means that the caregiver is less able or available to attend to the child's needs because they're having their own post-traumatic response. And so right. then the post-traumatic response of the caregiver and the responses of the child are kind of exacerbating each other. Oh, um, wow. yeah. So it can be really complicated. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so now that we have this um, kind of basic understanding of of how traumatic events can impact a young child. Um, I'm hoping maybe you could help us understand, maybe in a general sense at first, what do children, what do they need to recover from those kinds of experiences? And and in particular, what do they need from their caregiver? Mm -hmm. So I guess the most simple answer is they have to reestablish that security that they have lost or the sense of security that they have lost. And one of the important things about trauma is not only um, addressing real threats to safety, but also perceived threats to safety. So um, really having the parent or the caregiver understand how to reestablish themselves as a secure, predictable, um, safe base for that child and understand that even though the traumatic event may be over or the um, 
the things in their environment that were traumatic are removed, the perception of threat and lack of safety may still be there. Okay. Yeah. So it can, the experience can be powerful enough to shift the child's kind of uh, how they make sense of what they experience, their perception of, of events. Mm -hmm. And parents may understand that, but oftentimes I would get, I would guess parents don't necessarily know that unless they're guided in that process. Yeah. I think that's one of the really important things is, um, you know, I've had really helpful conversations with parents who are able to acknowledge some traumatic events that have occurred, but were maybe not aware of a lot of other things in the environment that were contributing to, you know, what we call like chronic stress in, in the environment. And so maybe there was one single traumatic incident that the parent is acknowledging and very aware of and working towards addressing and healing from that one incident. And they maybe didn't realize that there are a lot of other things actually in that child's environment that are also creating toxic levels of, of stress. Okay. Okay. So uh, I know that NFI Vermont Mm -hmm. and the NFI Family Center in particular have really been among the, in my opinion, among the leaders in Vermont in the field of childhood trauma. And one of the treatment approaches that your team has really strongly endorsed is family therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, could you speak a little bit about how you and your colleagues support parents in meeting their child, children's needs for recovery through family therapy? So, for example, based on what you were just saying, is it fair to assume that you would begin that process just with the parents? Yeah, so... And, you know, obviously, like you've said, you know, child parent psychotherapy is is a subset of of family therapy. And so there are a lot of um, areas where the process kind of overlaps. But yeah, so in child parent psychotherapy, that first initial um, phase of treatment has a specific name, which is the, you know, assessment and engagement phase. That's usually just with the caregiver and the clinician. And that's the same process that we would typically follow with regular family therapy, which is, um, you know, developing a relationship and um, a a kind of a working therapeutic alliance with the caregiver. And one of the unique things about CPP is, is really the diving into the parents' own traumatic experiences from their childhood, how they were parented, how they grew up, and how they hope to parent in the future. And there's quite a bit of time spent on talking that through and creating, co-creating a treatment plan together where they're really active participant in deciding, you know, what we're going to do to help them through treatment. Okay. So that, that makes sense to me. So it sounds like you're beginning with the parents, helping Mm -hmm. them feel safe with you, helping them explore the situation that their child has experienced, but also their own life experiences. And it sounds like because those have uh, uh, an impact in each parent's ability to uh, respond to their children's needs, their own early life experiences are a factor as well. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, when you assess that, are there times where you will assess a caregiver's Uh, capacity to meet their children's needs and you may determine um, 
that that they need to do a, a fair bit of work themselves to be ready? And, and how do you approach that? Yeah, so, yeah, that whole kind of initial phase is part of that assessment of readiness. And it's pretty variable in terms of length and, and how long we're going to work together with the caregiver before we invite the child into treatment. And, you know, it really depends on... Um, you know, who the caregiver is, were they present for the traumatic experience, what their history is, what their skill levels are, and where they are in terms of recognizing their role in whatever has occurred. Um, And sometimes we determine through that process, like you're saying, that they need to do some additional work on their own, um, their own, you know, trauma history or their own coping skills or their own, you know, responding to triggering events in their environment so that they're better able to assist their child and and walk with their child through treatment. Um, But that's something that we work through together. And, and again, I've had times where that um, phase kind of lasts a couple of weeks. And I've had times where that phase lasts several months and it really depends on where they're starting out and what level of support they need um, to prepare for inviting the child in. And if there's a if there's a family service worker who, you know, is is working in the field of child protection, mm-hmm. if they're working with a family where this may be a helpful approach, but they have concerns themselves about the the parents' capacity for it, mm-hmm. um, do do you encourage them to make that determination? Do you encourage them to make the referral and then know that you'll share that some degree of that assessment with them about the parents' readiness? How do you how do you advise people? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's ever a reason to not give a call and and make a referral. And we can sometimes assess, you know, over the phone just by getting some basic information, whether or not it's an appropriate fit. And other times I've had just a couple of initial sessions to um, just gain a, a better understanding of what's going on for that family and whether or not it's appropriate to start this kind of modality of treatment. Um but I think it can be a collaborative effort. Um, I personally, in my work with CPP, have worked with several women who are part of the Lund Residential Treatment Program, and I have gotten referrals from Lund family educators where we started right away, and it was a great fit, and it was totally um, appropriate. And other times I've gotten referrals where we decided collectively that there were some other treatment work that needed to be prioritized. And I was able to kind of give them a sense of what would need to happen to, um, to transition to this type of work. And so I was able to kind of help inform some of their treatment goals and we didn't start CPP right away, but eventually they were re-referred. And so I think it was a helpful process and I'm happy to be a part of that type of process. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, I'm, I'm imagining that um, it, a family service worker might also have the opportunity to refer a young child for um, individual therapy, and and an individual therapist, um, you know, may may really have the capacity to respond to the child in in the ways that we're talking about. Um, but I understand that that's not generally understood to be really effective at meeting the child's long-term needs the way family therapy is, even if the parent has to do some work to, to get ready themselves. Could you speak a little bit about, about that? 
Yeah. And I think that that's been one of, I mean, this is the case with all family therapy, but particularly with CPP, I've, I've established these really strong working relationships with, particularly with mothers and have really been able to establish a relationship where they're empowered to take the lead in sessions. And, you know, I've had experiences. So one of the things that we do in treatment is after the assessment and engagement phase, I talk with the parent, we plan together about, okay, so how do we want to present treatment to the child? How do we want to explain this to them? And we, we go through this um, exercise called the triangle of explanations of like, how are we going to explain how all of this um, has, has occurred and, and why we're engaging in treatment and why we're inviting the child in. And then it's up to the parent to kind of introduce treatment to the child. And I've had situations where the parent is really intimidated by that and they want me to, well, can't, can't you just say it? Can't you just take lead? I think it would be better coming from you. And you know, I've able, I've been able to support them in doing it themselves and their ability to take ownership and to take lead is so critical in terms of laying that foundation of their parent is going to be the one that keeps them safe. Their parent is the one that's going to be in charge. And I'm there as a support, but and I can share a lot of information about trauma and how it impacts them and how it impacts their kid, but they still are the expert on their kid. And, you know, it's nice when kids really love seeing me and <laughs> feel really supported by me. That's lovely. And I, I love kids, but that doesn't help that parent be able to do this on their own at home all day, every day. And so while I love when kids feel like they can trust me and talk to me, it's it's way more important for them to be able to trust and talk to their parent. And so that's that's the priority. Yeah, that sounds really critical. I, I mean, going back to what you explained at the beginning, that really the the core impact of the trauma is that it disrupts the child's ability to predict that their parent will keep them safe and meet their needs. And so if a therapist establishes a relationship with the child where the child feels like the therapist will keep them safe and meet their needs, that still doesn't resolve the core impact of the trauma. It really has to be with the with the caregiver. For the for the child to move forward developmentally, it really has to be reestablished with the caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. You explained that well. Thank you. Um so so let's say you've you've worked through the early phases of treatment and and you do decide to um bring a child in. My understanding is that CPP as a model is designed really for young kids, six and under. I know sometimes it may be, tenets of it may be um, kind of used with older kids, especially if they're developmentally younger, but typically we're talking about really young kids. So so if there's a toddler or a preschooler, um, I would imagine that you you probably have to speak their language in some way in terms mm-hmm. of helping them understand. So what does that look like? What does it sound like? Um yeah, help us yeah. understand this. So, yeah, so because CPP is an evidence-based treatment model, there are these kind of parameters around um, the demographic. And so for CPP, it's zero to five, zero through five. Um, okay. And 
But I've absolutely used the tenants of the CPP treatment model with older children as well. Um, it just, you know, doesn't count towards the body of evidence, sure. uh, you sure. know, that shows um, the effectiveness of the of the model. But um, yeah, to your point, it's it's been a very interesting journey to to get creative and to tailor interventions based on the child's age and their developmental stage. Um, and it was, you know, to be honest, intimidating a little at first, like I'm going to have a three-year-old come into my office and what does that mean? And how do we explain this in a way that, um, you know, we can't, you can't just sit on a couch and talk things through. That's not going to happen with a three-year-old. So, uh, getting creative and tailoring interventions was, it was a challenge, but it was a really fun challenge to get creative. And so sometimes that happens through, artwork and and creating things together sometimes most of the time it's happening through play and storytelling and so it really depending on the child's age and and stage like i said it's going to be pretty variable in terms of how much you are talking okay and so i i I like that you said you know you can't really just sit on the couch with them and Mm -mm. and right a three-year-old doesn't even stay on the couch i would imagine um and so uh, now I'm picturing you on the floor and I'm picturing toys and I'm picturing, is that, yeah, okay. So, and, and then do you, do, do you encourage the parent to raise the subject? Do you wait for the subject to present itself in whatever the child's doing? How do you approach that? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. And so one of the, um, I guess, I guess you would call it principles of the treatment model is this idea of speaking the unspeakable, which was probably one of the most powerful things that has kind of infiltrated all of my uh, clinical work is this, this idea that we're going to put things out there. I think a lot of parents come from the perspective of when the child is ready, they'll bring it up or, Um, They've never talked about it, so I don't think it bothers them. Or I don't think that they're old enough to really understand. And so when they're older, we're going to talk about it. Um, And this idea that we're we're going to acknowledge that this this has been a significant traumatic event and we're going to talk through it and we're going to, of course, in developmentally appropriate ways, Um, but we're going to put it on the table. And so that might just mean sometimes putting toys in the room that could evoke certain responses from the child. And you still are letting them kind of take the lead and see how it plays out and how it comes up. It might be more figurative rather than literal, you know, discussions around this, but, um, but we really don't shy away from, talking about what happened. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that was, was a trans, a change for me is we're getting all these toys ready for, um, doing play in our office. And part of that is police stations and fire stations and guns and stuff that you normally wouldn't just hand kids to play with maybe, um, especially depending on how young they are. But by providing those types of toys, um, it can lead the play in a certain direction where they're going to start to process some of the things that have happened. Okay. I think I understand. So, so you may have a dollhouse and in that dollhouse, 
um, there might be a crib and there might be a baby um, and they're over to the side, there might be a police car, a police officer. And so if there was if there was uh, an experience that the child had of neglect where they were left in the crib and the caregivers weren't there or uh, domestic violence and the police mm-hmm. had to come to the house or mm-hmm. then having those present creates opportunities so that hopefully it naturally comes up. And then mm-hmm. if it does come up, then the parent responds in that moment in a way to try to help reestablish that safety and security for the child. Yeah. And again, I think that during that planning, the assessment and engagement phase with the parents, we're talking through what could come up. How do you want to respond? What's that going to evoke for you personally? Um, because again, a lot of times they've both shared in a traumatic experience together. And so the parent has their own emotional response to when we're talking about this stuff. And so preparation is really important to support the parent. And and again, you're really aligning with them to ensure that when this stuff comes up, they're prepared and they know exactly what they want to say and how they want to, how they want to approach it. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, this is a, an evidence-based practice. Um, my understanding is that there's a, a pretty rigorous um, training process to become rostered in it, mm-hmm. um, and that that has that has happened uh, once, uh, kind of widely throughout Vermont. Um, and did you mention to me is there is there another upcoming cohort of that that's being offered? Yeah, so I think actually I was part of the second cohort. The first one was a lot smaller. The cohort that I the learning collaborative. Um, uh, cohort that I was a part of was much larger and broadly um, throughout the state. And we also included not only uh, clinicians from social service agencies, but also private practitioners, which was a unique thing about our group. Um, and yes, there will be a third, I think it's the third learning collaborative that will be coming to Vermont in November 2020. And again, you know, expanding even more to make sure that we're getting kind of in all the different pockets of the state, all the different designated agencies. It's grown from, you know, being um, sponsored by NFI and Easter Seals to including Howard Center. And really the push is to get as many people as we can rostered and um, go through this process, which it's typically my, my cohort went uh, 18 months, the learning collaborative went 18 okay. months and okay. that included three pretty intensive, um, in-person sessions. So if there are family service workers, um, throughout the state who have, ex- who have found that there are not the kind of family therapist resources in their region, mm-hmm. um, if they know a licensed clinician in their community who may be inclined to learn this model, they should mention it to them. They should maybe point them to the NFI Family Center, at least as a starting place to yeah. get connected with the next learning collaborative. Okay. Yeah, great. absolutely. Yeah. They can go to the NFI Family Center website and find more information. Um, and like I said, the goal is that every district for family service workers will have um, providers that are trained in this and um, and to continue to spread the model throughout the state. Yeah, excellent. And so I have maybe one more question 
for you before we before we wrap up. So I did mention early on. I mean, we're in the we're in the middle of physical distancing right mm-hmm. now, and so so I'm curious. I mean, I think we're all figuring this out as as we go. Um, what have you figured out so far? Are you able to still provide CPP services? How are you doing that? What's that looking like right now? Yeah. So. You know, it depends on the family. I am still providing um, virtual therapy for all of my clients, but depending on the family um, and the child's ability to kind of engage, it's it's played out a couple different ways, and it's kind of really pushed me again to adapt and, and change what I'm comfortable with and what I'm used to in terms of um, engaging in treatment. But some parents it have really taken advantage of using this time to kind of go back to basics to um because this is you know people are home with their kids full time and perhaps some of the things that are going on in the community and the the feelings of insecurity or lack of safety might be provoking some old feelings and behaviors and so kind of going back to basics around establishing a connection with the parent and uh, focusing on attachment, focusing on regulation and um, providing safety for their child. And then there are also some kids who um, are able to continue the work that we've been doing and and playing and getting creative about how to stay uh, connected and do the work that we have started. So it's been a really interesting process to see how kids have adapted and and how to meet families' needs during this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for the the work that you're you're doing with this. And if there was a family service worker who suspected there might be a clinician who was rostered in CPP, but they didn't know in their community, um, could they reach out to the NFI Family Center? Do you do you have a list of who's who's rostered? Well, out yeah, there? you can actually go to uh, Child Parent Psychotherapy. I don't know if it's .org or .com, um, okay. but you can Google it. And there yep. on their primary website, there's a map that has all of the rostered clinicians everywhere. And so you just click okay. on Vermont and it will show you um, based on county and region and who's rostered in your area. You can find all of that online. Uh, that's super helpful. Yeah. Excellent. Caitlin, you have been fabulous to talk with. You've been so generous with your time and your expertise. I can't I can't thank you enough. Thanks a thank ton. Thank you so much. It was fun. It really was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks for listening. If you have any ideas about topics that you want us to cover or episodes that you're interested in hearing, shoot us a message. You can reach me by email at cassie.gillespie at uvm.edu or you can leave us a comment on the webpage where you downloaded this podcast. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. And a special thank you to Brickdrop for composing and recording our music. See you next time.